0: Have a lot of want to say this morning so let's uh, let's just get right to work with the passage the great uh th- this is the great commission it's of course one of the most well known passages, but I also um am of the belief that it's one of the most misunderstood passages um, and so I want to really spend some time working with the text this morning, uh, making sure we comprehend its implications for our lives to say that we exist for the good of the bluegrass is To say we exist for a particularized version of the Great Commission. And and that's what I want us to to see this morning. We're going to come at it in two ways. Uh, By looking at the command of Jesus and the strategy of Jesus. So his command and his strategy. Let's jump right in to his command. Verse 19. Go. That's it. Go is the main imperative of the verse. So let's just spend a minute with go. Everything else we're going to look at is describing how we should go, but the foremost command is that we are to go. And I want us to consider the implications of that. Now, first, you have to see that go is not alone. It is go therefore, therefore go. And that matters a lot. The command to go must not be separated from what we explored last week, and it is the word therefore that connects uh, the two. Jesus says in verse 18 that all authority in heaven and earth has been uh, given to him. And what we said last week is what Jesus is saying there is that he owns heaven and earth. But we talked about how it doesn't look like he owns heaven and earth, and that happens to be the dilemma of heaven and earth. Jesus owns everything, but everything is, rebellion, is in rebellion against Jesus. So what is his plan to fix that? What is he going to do about that? Well, that's why it says, therefore. That's the connection. It says, therefore, go. So let me simplify the thrust of the Great Commission for us here from the onset. It's, 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 it's really simple. Jesus owns all things, But it doesn't look like Jesus owns all things. Therefore, go and do something about it. Now, we're going to look at, we're going to talk about um, what he wants us to do about it, the details of that. But I just want to dwell first here on the word go and all of its implications because it's significant. What are these implications of the word go? And in particular, I I want us to consider this. Is, Is this an apt description of the way we imagine cultural engagement? Is the word go a good description of the way in which we engage the world for Christ? Because what we need to understand is that the word go is an offensive word. I don't mean offensive in the nature of um, ugly or distasteful or mean or unkind I mean literally it is a word that implies offense offense If this is the last week uh, without football hallelujah uh, the fast is over the feast begins next weekend um, I, think, I think football is the greatest game ever invented we can argue about that you're not going to win that argument but we can argue and what makes the game so compelling is the strategic battle between offense and defense. Nowhere, um, nowhere is that clash, that engagement more pronounced than in football. Offense on one side trying to advance, defense on the other side trying to stop that advancement. Well, at the risk of sounding trivial, if you were to imagine the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of this world the the the, uh the gospel's light versus sin's darkness if you were to imagine that on a football field i want you to answer this question who's on offense who's got the ball is the church on offense or defense how you answer that question says a lot about how you view our calling in this world what we see in the word go is that Jesus thinks we are actually on the offense. But I think most of us imagine and work out of the assumption that we're on defense. I don't think, for the church in our day and for many of us, I don't think go is the operative word in our minds and in our habits. I think of words like defend or survive or endure. Or maybe even, in worst cases, retreat, hide, protect, hang on. (laughs) But Christ's expectation is go. General Mattis was once asked the question, what keeps you up at night? Um, You know, you're you're Secretary of Defense. you, You get let in on all of the scary stuff. All of the threats that we don't know about that would freak us out if we knew about. You get let in on everything. So out of everything you know, what keeps you up at night? His answer was brilliant. He said, oh, nothing. My job is to keep them up at night. Now, do you see, do do you understand, do you understand the paradigm shift there? Um, At the, and and by the way, I'm not, uh, um, I'm not trying to turn this into the church militant thing. That is a huge problem with the American church, um, Far too militant. We are, if you want to call us militant, we are, we are militant with, with love. But the, the paradigm shift will dramatically change the way you conceive of missions in this world. The powers of darkness, the forces of evil, the means of injustice should be terrified of the followers of Jesus Christ. Not the other way around. And let me particularize things even more, since that's what we're talking about. All forms of evil... In the bluegrass, should be very afraid of Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. When Christ says, Go to the nations, that should not be interpreted as everyone's supposed to do the missionary thing. That might be an application for you. It's often how it's um, interpreted, but the point he is making is that he wants all the nations back because he owns all the nations, and so what that probably means is that he's calling you to go to the nation where he has placed you. He's calling you to go to the neighborhood where he has you. And so we particularize our vision to where God has us. Our part in this overarching command to go is the bluegrass. That's where he has us. That's the little nook of creation that he has entrusted to our congregation. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that we are not on the defense on defense to the powers of darkness that work in the bluegrass, we're on the offense. To exist for the good of the bluegrass means we exist to undo that which is not good for the bluegrass. So what is harmful, what is evil, what is unjust within our beloved community should be terrified of Taste Creek Presbyterian Church. Not because we're angry, militant, any, any, of, any of those imagery that comes to your mind, but because we seek to undo what is a threat to shalom in God's creation. So evil should be afraid of our church, not the other way around. But how? How do we go? I wanted to just take a moment to dwell on the fact that Jesus is telling us to go here, and that has implications. But but the bigger question here is how? If we are on offense, then what's our strategy? In other words, that's where the details of the commission come in. We've seen the command. Let's look at the strategy. Okay, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples. <laughs> and that's it. His grand plan to reclaim the world is to make disciples throughout the world. And make no mistake, that's not just saved souls throughout the world. When he talks about discipleship, when he talks about disciples, he's not just talking about saved souls. He's talking about followers of Jesus. He literally intends to fix the world, cultures, institutions, businesses, neighborhoods. He owns it all, not just the souls who fill it all. He owns all of it. So when he says, I own heaven and earth, therefore go make disciples of all the earth, he is implying that he believes this connection making disciples will not just save the souls of the disciples, but it will literally fix the world. That's how significant he thinks the discipleship strategy is. Christ's solution to creation's fall is Christian disciples. Now, if you find yourself skeptical about that strategy, that is, its power and effectiveness to actually do what he's asking it to do, then that probably reflects a shallow understanding of discipleship. There are two qualifying words that Jesus gives here which serve as his description of Christian discipleship. So he says make disciples. Okay, what's a disciple? What is discipleship? Well, he gives two words here that form his understanding of discipleship. And um, so we'll see if you see them. Um, see if you can see um, the, uh, the two participles. A participle is an action that is used as an adjective, um, often an I-N-G word, going. Um, there are two participles here. And what are they? Baptizing and teaching. Christ views making disciples as baptizing and teaching. Now, again, that may not seem significant to you, But that's because we fail to understand the significance of baptizing and teaching. Rightly understood, these two things will in fact redeem the world. How so? Well, let's look at each of those and make sure we understand their significance because this is what forms his understanding of discipleship. He says baptizing. Jesus says, I want you to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this is in my opinion, by far the most misunderstood aspect of the Great Commission. Perhaps not misunderstood, because it's hard to misunderstand the call to baptize, but what's behind the meaning of that? It is so much more than just the act of Christian baptism. If you view baptism as merely an individualistic act, um, my individual statement that I am making... um, that's completely disconnected from church, worship, all these different things. In other words, if you have a revivalistic view of baptism, then you will not understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus talks here about, let me tell you what he's saying up front and then I'll show you what that means. When Jesus talks here about baptizing the nations, he is talking about building his church throughout the world, okay? Baptism... In the New Testament context, it's very clear. In fact, this is him instituting it. Um, he's the apostles of the foundation of the church, and he's instituting something here. It's the first institution of baptism, at least Christian baptism, the way we practice it. Baptism is the initiation rite into Christ's holy institution on earth, the church. Jesus said, I'm going to build a church through you apostles, and, he, and here he is saying baptism is going to be the initiation rite into that church who are God's people on earth who are those holy set apart people of God on this mission of God how can you tell us apart well we are members of his church the church is his institution his organization his society his nation it's even called in scripture okay so who are the members of the church The answer to that biblically is the baptized. Baptism at its core is the entrance into the church. Just as circumcision served as the initiation... Um, ritual into Old Testament Israel, so baptism serves as the initiation ritual into the New Testament church. In the same way that in the Older Covenant they were separated by circumcised and uncircumcised, in the Newer Covenant it is separation by baptized and unbaptized. So when Jesus tells them to baptize the nations, he is telling them to build a global church throughout the nations, is the point. Now, if that's what he's saying here, and here's the point of all that, if that's what he's saying here, then do you now understand how powerful this truly is, redemptively speaking? If making disciples, disciples means building a global institution throughout this world whose purpose is Christ's glory and creation's good, well, now we're talking about something pretty powerful. And when I say church, please understand, I'm talking church Catholic, not The Roman Catholic Church, big C, the little C that we confess in our creed. I'm talking not Presbyterianism. I'm talking about uh, the, the, the global universal church, all of our traditions and diversity. If what he's talking about here is creating this global institution for his purposes in the world, then we're talking about something powerful. In fact, Jesus explicitly says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's his promise, right? That is a statement of offense, not defense, okay? When he says the gates of hell will not prevail, he's saying that the church is storming the gates of hell and those doors will not be able to withstand the storm. So, you by yourself are not, you by yourself as an individual Christian are not powerful enough to fix the world. Not even close, Nor is an unorganized, organic, disconnected collection of people powerful enough to fix the world. But the church, a corporate institution of which you are a tiny yet very significant part of. We're a body and we need elbows and fingers and every part. But that collective body has proven and will continue to prove to be the greatest redeeming force on the planet. So when he says baptize here, he's saying, I want you to build something big, a global institution to fix the world. All right, let's consider the second participle to discipleship. It's not just baptizing them into the church, it's teaching. Now, once again, we fail to realize the significance of what Jesus is saying here. If you imagine teaching as merely cognitive education, then you miss the point. Typically, when we think about discipleship, The way we think about it is taking someone who doesn't know much about the Christian faith and teaching them a lot of information about the Christian faith. That's essentially how many of us do discipleship. So in this way, discipleship is essentially an information dump of Bible and doctrine. Now, I do not in any way minimize the importance of Christian education. I am not, you know me and you know this church, we are not on the the trend in evangelicalism that minimizes doctrine, truth, study, all these different things. Bible study, theology reading, doctrine teaching, systematic catechizing, all these things are very crucial to discipleship, but here's the point. Not as an end in themselves, but as a means to a far greater end, and that end is explicit in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Another translation would be just straight up, obey all that I have commanded you. It doesn't say, teach them all that I have commanded you. It says, teach them to obey what I have commanded you. Now, if Christian discipleship only teaches about Jesus without teaching us how to obey Jesus, then it is in Christian discipleship, according to Jesus here. Teaching about Jesus is only a means to empower obedience to Jesus. To put it more strongly, if teaching only remains in the head and doesn't overflow into the life, then the teaching is worthless. Now listen, this is very important for us, okay? We need to check ourselves here. Um, In our tradition, the Reformed church is notorious for being people filled with a lot of information who do very little we know a lot of stuff and do little stuff if you know a lot about jesus but you do not obey jesus then you know nothing about following jesus christ says teaching them to obey all that i have commanded now once again do you now see the power of this There is zero power in a people who know a lot about Jesus. And that's it. There's no transformative power there. In fact, Satan knows a lot about Jesus, more than you. But there is unmatched, transformative, redemptive power in a community of people obeying Jesus in the world around them. People who are following in his ways in the world around them. Now, it it may be intimidating to hear Jesus say, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Well, good gracious, you commanded a lot. And we need to constantly learn all that Jesus said and constantly imagine what it would look like to live all these things out. But I'm gonna make it really simple for you because Jesus made it really simple for us. He was asked, out of all these commands, out of all of your teachings, out of all the laws, out of all the prophets, sum it up. What's, what's the most important thing? And his answer was twofold. He says, you are to love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Translation, you are to love the Lord your God with every fiber of your being and your neighbor as yourself. That is a vertical call. Love God with all that you are, and that is a horizontal calling. Love your neighbor with the same devotion that you love yourself. So putting it all together here. A universal, global, holy church, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, obeying, not learning, but obeying Christ's command to love God and love neighbor, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, can and will redeem the world. More specifically, a local manifestation of the global church, a local church, Tays Creek Christian Church, in a particular community, the Bluegrass, that's our nation, obeying Christ's command to love God and neighbor can and will redeem that community. Now you still may be a little skeptical about that power, but hang with me. I want to pause here for a moment to talk about application here's the question I want you to consider and this gets at another um, misunderstanding about the Great Commission here's the question Um, who are you who are you in this passage there is there is a common uh, here's how it's typically taught and and I'm telling you up front there's nothing wrong with teaching it this way I've taught it this way it is right and true to view yourself from the perspective of the apostles here getting commissioned by Jesus to go make disciples of the nations. Very appropriate interpretation of the passage. So the application would be go make disciples. That's how it's often taught. Nothing wrong with that interpretation. Evangelize the loss. Unite them to the church through baptism that they may be taught to obey all that Jesus commanded. But here's another way to come at the passage that's also appropriate. And we dare not forget this. We are the disciples that are being made. Go make disciples of all the nations. We're those disciples. The Great Commission worked, and it still is working. And we are the fruit of the Great Commission. When Jesus said this 2,000 years ago to his disciples, this, this nation was unknown, and certainly you were unknown. And yet here we are in this nation Where Jesus is known, and we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And to see yourself that way, alongside, yes, being the person who's going to make disciples, but to see yourself that way is a powerful, powerful vision for your life. It's not secondary to being the missionary who goes and makes disciples you are as a baptized member of the local church learning more and more what it means to love God and love your neighbor. That is a high, noble, and powerful calling. The very vision that Jesus has to reclaim the world for himself are all of these disciples that he has made loving him and loving neighbor. And I just want to conclude to speak by speaking to our cynical hearts and reminding us that it actually is going to work. It really is. Let me bring it back to football one more time. My apologies. I asked you earlier if the church was on offense or defense. Now I want to ask you this. Who's going to win? That question matters a lot too. Do you you know how important it is To believe you're, or put it this way, if a team goes into a game convinced that they will lose, then they've already lost the game. They're going to lose. So I would say this. I know it looks like to us who are so tempted to walk by sight, not by faith, that we are losing and losing is inevitable. Again, forgive the competition, us versus the world language. Um, Sometimes that's not helpful, but you get the point. That we're losing, and losing is an But this fails to remember the promise and the power of the one who is giving the commission. All authority in heaven and on earth is his. That necessarily means his followers are on the winning team. And if you're not a follower of Jesus... Um, it may not look like that to you. We may look like a small, struggling, hypocritical group of Christians. I get it. Um, the church might not be that impressive to you. We certainly are probably not that impressive to you. But you need to know our Jesus is impressive. And he is sovereign and he does rule and reign. And I just, I just need to warn you that to not be on his side in the end will be the greatest eternal regret you will have. By faith, join the followers of Jesus Christ who do not commend ourselves to you, but commend our Savior to you. It'll work. He is Lord. He is redeeming, and it's going to happen. Let's return to the eclipse illustration from last week. I got to milk that thing for one more sermon. If you remember this, what I said, I said uh, Jesus is preeminent over this world as the sun is preeminent over the skies, but it doesn't look like it because the fall is like an eclipse of his preeminence, casting a shadow over all creation so that it doesn't look like Jesus reigns, even though he does. So I said, you know, even though the sun's in the air, the moon's gonna get, it's gonna go dark. Well, the next day I go out with my eclipse glasses and the entire illustration was ruined, at least for those of us in Lexington. I know you total eclipse travelers, who've been bragging about how awesome it was, um, it says the greatest thing ever. But for us, it just, like, there was a shadow for a couple of minutes, and that was it. And here's why. Something I didn't expect. Apparently, only 5% of the sun is still able to break through and light up the world. Only 5%. Now, that, that ruined last week's illustration, but it served up this week's. I know TCPC is a small congregation. I know the number of people in the bluegrass who gather in local churches and try their best to follow Jesus' teaching and make disciples small compared to the rest of the world around us. I know when you look at this present darkness, you are tempted to be overwhelmed by its vastness. But friends, we have something going for us. Our side is led by the one who owns the bluegrass. Our side is the light of the world, and a little bit of light expels a whole lot of darkness. Who is going to win? Jesus is going to win. The Lord Jesus owns the bluegrass, and one day the bluegrass is going to look like it. And I mean that. Let's be found faithful in our small part as a church and as individuals, in getting the bluegrass where it belongs for his glory and the good of the bluegrass. Let me pray. Help us, empower us, give us all that we need to go forth as witnesses of your glory and of your grace. Lord, we admit our fears, we admit our doubts, we admit that it doesn't look like it, but we trust more than that your resurrection from the dead, that you rule and you reign, and that someday all the nations will bow to you. Help us to do our part right here in this small context um, to, get this, uh, to get this community, the bluegrass, to the feet of Jesus. Whatever that looks like in our lives, Lord, empower and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.